Lord our God. We stand beneath the cross. Amazed at what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, we have to admit that often we feel that the road we're traveling is the loneliest road. It's difficult for us to imagine others hurting as much as we sometimes hurt. It's hard to believe that that other people long as much as we do for understanding and compassion. We have those moments when our problems and our pain, our confusion, our grief, our struggle seems greater than anyone else's. And then we remember the cross. Father, we know that Jesus was tempted in every way we're tempted. We know that everyone, even his closest friends, deserted him. He was put to death as a common criminal, mocked, tortured, abused. And yet you raised him up. And you glorified him even through the cross. We've come today to give you thanks. Father, as we live in this world, help us to identify with Christ. To hear him calling us in the crowd to to follow him in the way of the cross. Turn us from our lonely way to his lonely way. Let the power and the glory that were in him be in us. Christ lives in us. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in this world. To be your servants wherever you need us. Use us to touch the lives of other people walking lonely roads. Use what, whatever we have to, to combat hunger and injustice and, and evil in the earth. We pray that you would use your power and your people, including us, to end the wars that kill and injure and displace so many of your children. Father, in the power of Christ, heal our diseases. Be present in our grief. Give us wisdom about the future. Father, help us, your church, in this day, to be a church honors you. Father, like the heroes of our faith in every age, let us become faithful followers in Christ's way. Make us courageous, generous. Make us loving and caring so that we may be catalysts to bring your grace and peace and love in this earth. As we look forward to that day when we will all be gathered together in adoration around your throne, purified by the blood of Christ.
whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand and join with me the New Testament reading found in Mark 15, 16 through 37. The soldiers mock Jesus. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then wove a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. <laughs> he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone now. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord.
Father, as we have sung about your love, we ask that you will teach us, open our eyes, and we understand more and more of the cross. In the name of Christ, amen. Please be seated. Does the cross of Christ impact how you live? Does the death of Christ bear upon the decisions that you make? Does it make a difference in how you treat people? In in how you live your life as you go through your day at your place of work, your home, even as we come and gather for worship? Does thinking about the cross have a bearing on what you do or don't do when no one else is around? Does the passion of Christ drive your life? Now, I would suspect that many of us would say, well, yeah, of course, that's what being a Christian's about. The Christ and and the passion, the death, the cross of Christ is at the center of my life, and that, that's what it's about. But if that's the case, why do we struggle so much with being self-absorbed and self-centered and arrogant? Why, why do we so easily doubt God 
and his promises to us. If the cross is so central to our lives, why why do we tend to be so slow to pray and so quick to judge? If the cross is that important to us, how do we explain our apathy toward people who are in need? Beyond that, how do we how do we explain the fact that we often are the source of the pain in people's lives? with our words and our actions. I suspect that there are many reasons for why we struggle with these things. But it seems to me that one of the key reasons is that maybe the cross isn't quite as important to us as we say it is. Maybe the cross doesn't really impact our lives as forcefully and as fully as we might like to think that it does. And it is probably in light of that wise for us to revisit what we see on the cross. The physical pain that Jesus endures is obviously very difficult. It is is a hard part of, of the crucifixion and what he goes through. But it's interesting to me that when you read Mark's gospel, he has very little to say about the physical pain of Jesus. But he has a lot to say about the verbal abuse that Jesus endures. His statement about Jesus' crucifixion is simply, and they crucified him. Simple, to the point, no detail. But he has numerous phrases and pictures that he gives to us about the verbal abuse and ridicule that Jesus endures. You know, words are often more of a means of inciting us than actions are. Words are often what begins us on the path to using our fists against people or to use weapons against people. It often begins with words between people. You think about about the scene of of two gangs. They they may stand and, and face each other and never do anything until somebody says something. And a challenge is made. Someone is is threatened or offended or insulted, and the war is on. We don't need to go to gangs to see that. If you watch sports, you see it between teams that are rivals of one another. The game is going along, and, and, and all of a sudden you see somebody says something to someone else, a word is spoken, an insult, a dig, and pretty soon they're at each other. But we don't even need to do that. Just think about the problems that we, you may have in the place where you work and what incites people to behavior that we might never think would happen. It's because of words. Or think about our homes and how we incite one another with our words. And when someone says something that that offends us or or hurts us or strikes at us, we have a tendency to to respond, what did you say? If the situation is a little volatile, you're talking to me? Are you sure you want to go there? 
and you can feel nothing has happened except words, and yet in the words you can feel the intensity rising. We're not very good at, at taking the things that people say to us. And we come to the cross, and Jesus, even before the cross, he's arrested and taken to to a place with the soldiers, and they begin to mock him. They beat him. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They take off his clothes and put on a purple robe, and they mock him. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. New Living Translation has an interesting statement there as it translates that verse and says, when they were tired of mocking him, they put his clothes back on and took him away. Mocked him so long with such intensity, they grew weary of it. And then he comes to the cross and he's, he's hanging on the cross. And, and Mark tells us that people were passing by. Maybe the cross must have, must have been erected near a road, thoroughfare. And as people walked by on this road, they jeered at Jesus, insulted him. One who said that, He would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well, come on down and do it. Probably they're egged on by the religious leaders who join in as well. They speak among themselves, but you know they're speaking loud enough for Jesus to hear. Well, if he's the son of God, let's see it. If he's as great as he says he is, come on down. Mocking and the ridicule may reach its apex when even the thieves crucified next to him, dying themselves, throw insults at him. When people speak words of insult and ridicule at us, I think it's particularly hard when when we feel alone about it. They're more painful when it feels like no one is supporting us. And you think of a moment in your life when when you felt ridiculed and falsely accused and it made a difference if other people came to your rescue. You know, put their arm around you and said, I'm sorry about that, but I'm here with you. It's a great story about Jackie Robinson, you know, the first African-American to play in the major leagues. And one day in that first season, he was at home playing for his home team, Brooklyn Dodgers. And a ball was hit to him, and he made an error. And the fans began to jeer him and insult him and yell at him mercilessly. And he stood out by second base with his head down, completely dejected. The shortstop, Pee Wee Reese, who'd been a longtime favorite of Dodger fans, came over stood next to Jackie, put his arm around him, and looked up at the crowd. And they grew silent. Jackie Robinson said that moment saved his career. Something about someone coming alongside of us and saying, I'm here with you. And maybe that's what makes this ridicule and mockery even worse, is because no one is there for Jesus. His disciples desert him. Those people who are closest to him are gone. Those people that, that he might have wanted, not necessarily to, to go to the religious leaders and the passers-by and to say, will you stop it? 
If he wanted to, he could come down and defend Jesus. But rather to stand there and to say to him, we don't understand, but we're here for you. We support you. We love you. And to go through it with him. There's nothing. Maybe even if Jesus had been able to look down and realize that the people standing there around him and the people walking up and down the road might have have been looking on with horror at the injustice of what was taking place. If people would have been sympathetic, if people would have been compassionate, if he could tell that their hearts were breaking as they watched him go through this, it would have made a difference. A little bit easier to take it if the people around him there, even these people just passing by, he could have seen in their faces or even heard something in their voices. Man, this is wrong. Come on, you shouldn't be doing that. Give the guy a break. He's up. And he gets nothing. Maybe that has something to do with his with his cry about God forsaking him. There's certainly theological implications to that of of taking the sins of the world upon himself and, and that sin making him feel separated from the Father. Surely he couldn't have felt any more alone than at that moment from everyone else as well. And I think words are very difficult to take when you know you could do something about it. When people accuse you of something that you didn't do, what's the first thing you want to do? Prove them wrong. When somebody says you can't do something, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to go do it. When people challenge you and dare you, what do you want to do? You want to do it. You want to prove to them that whatever they're accusing you of, whatever they're saying about you is wrong. And the most natural response in the world is to rise up and say, no, I can do that. I'm not like that. You're wrong. We want to shut up our critics, put people in their place, let them know that uh, we're not who they say we are. When you think of a a police officer that has arrested a suspect, cuffed them, has them on the ground, a knee in the back. All the power is theirs. The guy on the ground is still throwing out trash, trying to incite them. It's got to be so tough for the officer not to tell him what to teach him a lesson. Here's Jesus, with all the power, all the might, all the power in the universe and every right in the world to prove them wrong. And he stays there. Now, if it were me, I don't think I could stay there. I think it'd be so hard not to come down And to say, look, shut up and let me show you why. If I had the power and the ability 
to stop someone from saying the kinds of things they're saying to Jesus about me, I'd do it. Let's be honest. We probably all would. That's the most natural thing in the world. We've all done it at one time or another. We defend ourselves. That's what we do as human beings. We set people straight. We keep them from talking. We stop the ridicule and the mocking. That's what we do. I was thinking about this. I was reminded of a scene from the, uh, the 1980 movie Superman 2. I saw Christopher Reeve as Superman, Clark Kent. And, and in this movie, he, because of his, his love for Lois Lane, he gives up all of his powers in order to be with her. On the way back from their, from their honeymoon, they stop at this little diner and they walk in and, and this, this bully starts, uh, starts making advances toward Lois. Clark steps up, begins to defend her. He says to the guy, you want to take this outside? The guy laughs. He's a big guy. He says, come on. So Clark turns his back to walk away, and the guy sucker punches him. And he hits him five, six, seven times until he's lying a heap on the ground. First time Clark Kent has ever seen his own blood. And this bully has pummeled him. As the movie goes on, he regains his powers and takes care of the the menace that's destroying the earth. And near the end of the movie, he goes back to that diner as Clark Kent. And he walks in, the same bully's there, and he says, I I think we have some unfinished business. And the guy laughs, and everybody in the diner's kind of backing up, you know. And the guy begins to come at him, and and Clark takes him out. And he ends up sliding him down the banister of, of, the, of the restaurant, and he lands in a, in a pinball machine. And everybody in the place is going, yeah. And you watch the movie, and you go, yeah, that's justice. That's what we ought to do, because that's what we like. That's what we want to see happen. That's what we want to do. And Jesus stays on the cross. You know the whole time Satan is whispering in his ear. Come on down. Show them. You know you can. They can't stop you. You know, you could put them in their place in a moment. Show them who's boss. Come on. Do it. How difficult that must have been for Jesus. Everything Satan is saying to him is true. Jesus could come down. Jesus could put them in their place. Jesus could show them who rules the universe. And if Jesus is fully human as as we believe that he is, then that temptation was as strong for him on the cross as it would be for us. If it wasn't a temptation for him to come down from the cross, then he's not human and, and his life is a sham. Satan is badgering him and tempting him to come down. And he feels all of that. But he stays. 
And the question that we have to continually ask ourselves is why? Why does he stay? Why does he stay and let them think that he's not who he says he is? Why does he take it when he has all the power in the world to stop it? Why does he stay on the cross and endure all that ridicule when he could come down and prove them wrong? Why does he do that? Because he's committed to God's plan, redemption. And God's plan of redemption is about Jesus going to death. They can't stop him. They can't keep him on the cross any more than than a piece of tissue paper can stop a rumbling locomotive. If he wants to come down, he can come down. But he doesn't because he's committed to the Father's plan for our redemption. It's really about saving us. That's been his mission from the beginning. The angel says to Joseph, you call his name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. John the Baptist declares to those when Jesus arrives to be baptized, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah says he was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. Peace that we have is because of what he did. Our sins were laid on him. He stays on the cross to set us free from sin, from the punishment of sin and from the power of sin. Because Jesus stays on the cross, we can be forgiven from our sins, but even more, we can live in victory and peace and joy and love now. But we cannot be free from sin unless Jesus dies. So he stays and he sets us free. Because he stays, we can be the people God created us to be. And why does Jesus commit himself to the Father's plan? Because he loves us. It's not really nails that keep Jesus on the cross. It's love. It's love that that causes Jesus to to choose to endure and to ignore the ridicule and the mocking that he faces those hours hanging there on the cross. He loves you and he loves me and he stays and he takes it all for us. The only thing that's left is to decide how we're going to respond. It seems to me that the the most appropriate response to what Christ has done is gratitude. To be so enamored with, with Christ's love and his commitment to us that he's willing to go through all of this that the most natural thing in the world is to have hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving. We ought to be the most grateful people in the world. But it's gratitude that doesn't just feel, but it's gratitude that is so, that, that so immerses itself in us 
that it comes out in faith and action and in love and compassion and in obedience and trust. If we have any thoughts at all about what Christ has done for us, our hearts ought to explode with gratitude. And in that gratitude, choose to live for him. Let the gratitude motivate us to obedience and faith and compassion and love. When we look at the cross, we want Christ to change our lives. That in our gratitude for the cross, we choose to obey even when we don't understand. And we choose the selfless path even when we want our own way. We choose humility even when we want to be first and, and powerful. We choose love even when we really don't want to get involved. We choose to risk even when we want to play it safe. And I'm convinced that only when our hearts are filled with this kind of gratitude, kind of gratitude for the cross, will the life change truly come. Most of you are familiar with the C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. First book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Chronicles, the story of the four children, Peter and Susan, Edmund and Lucy, who find themselves in this magical world of Narnia. In the course of their time there, they, they meet Aslan, the great king, the Christ figure. And they encounter the white witch, the presence of evil. Eventually, Edmund gets himself in trouble and needs to be rescued. And Aslan realizes that the only rescue for Edmund is to give himself. The book that was made into a movie has a scene that is so powerful of Aslan surrendering himself to the white queen and all of her minions. In this scene, she, they, they mock Aslan. They taunt him. And I encourage you to think about Christ as you watch. The lion of Intrigues me in that picture of Lucy and Susan looking at each other and asking, Why is my father That's the question we ask of Christ. Why doesn't he fight with us? Why does he take it? Why does he stay there and endure all of that? For you, for me. And gratitude for what he's done. Let's live in the power he gives us. Gracious Father, we are 
astounded. Christ would endure and ignore for us. Father, make us grateful people. The gratitude in our hearts be visible in obedience, trust, and faith. And may our thanksgiving allow you to make us more like Christ. Amen.